we're sitting down with a man who has, or I think has had many lifetimes of experience. I was reading his book last night and I'm quite jealous of all the exploits he's done. It is of course, Kelvin Glare. Kelvin Glare was most famous, I guess, for being the Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police, the top dog, the boss, the head honcho of Victoria Police, and became known as the angry ant. And I must say, Kel, you talk a lot about your height in this book. You don't appear short to me. Well, I was certainly short in terms of policing because there were height restrictions when I joined, ah. which in the old was five feet nine and I was ever only five feet eight and a half. But the Chief Commissioner of the day had the prerogative to admit people as short mm. as five feet eight. Mm. That was largely aimed at ex-service people. Mm. But uh, I was fortunate enough that he exercised his discretion in my favour. Excellent. And we're glad he did because he rose through the ranks and he became the Chief Commissioner. And along the way, we're going to talk about now in an interview the different themes that I've kind of picked up in, in Kel's life and his, his story. If you want to read it, it's very good. It's called The Angry Ant. You can just Google that. There's no other books called The Angry Ant. Uh, and I've noticed some themes, Kel, I'd love to talk about things, the fact that corruption annoyed you so much and so on. So let's get into all of that. But why don't we start with something back at the start? Why don't we talk about the fact that when you joined Victoria Police, that was in... Six, 10th of May, 57. 57, okay, so long before I was born. Victoria Police then and now is a very different animal. Absolutely. So can, why don't we start with that? Broadly speaking, how do you think it's changed over the years? It's become a much more educated force for a start. Between 1949 and 1965, mm. Victoria Police did not recruit a single university graduate. Mm. Only 7% in, uh, when I joined uh, had matriculated. Mm. And I had an inspector once tell me that anyone who had their matriculation was overeducated to be a member of the police force, something at the time I disagreed with. Mm. But um, so we've got a much more educated force uh, and that actually has to improve standards. There's no question in my mind about that. And um, when I joined the police force, alcohol and violence were rife and that was just within the police force. Yes. It was a pretty rough, tough kind of... Uh, occupation. As the pygmy of the force at the time um, and baby-faced, uh, I found myself having to uh, uh, fight for survival in the physical sense at times, yeah. arresting drunks and so on. Everyone yeah. wanted to have a poke at this fresh-faced kid. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, I had a few amateur fights, not with a great success, I've got to tell you, but yeah. uh, with more training in the police uh, depot, academy as it is called now, mm. I was able to defend myself and the only time I ever came to serious harm was uh, when I was set upon by a gang of four. So let me go back to when you said it's a more educated force. Do you think that is, if you look at the community as a whole, we're all more educated? Yes. University retro. So it's simply reflecting the community, right? Or is there a deliberate push to increase the quality of well, the people? I certainly made a determined push to increase the number of people with tertiary qualifications. Might not necessarily make them better police, but the chances are it will improve their ability to think and reason logically and, and so on. Mm. So I gave members uh, up to eight hours a week time off if they were doing tertiary courses. Mm. The only time that gave me a bit of trouble was when someone wanted to study cake decoration. <laughs> cake decoration. <laughs> and, I, and you denied it? I was hard pressed. Uh, I did. Oh, uh, how dare you? I was hard pressed to find a justification for giving time off for that, but... Uh, yeah. But um, 
I went to the graduation of a son of mine, oh, probably about 10 or 12 years ago now, and 83% of that recruit squad had tertiary qualifications, mm. whereas the squads, uh, the 60 that I joined with, uh, no one had a tertiary qualification. And I failed year, you know, I left school at 14 having failed year 10. So uh, I had a lot of catching up to do when I turned my mind back to uh, more formal education. Well, we certainly, you certainly caught up. So before you were Chief Commissioner, which was 87 to 93, 92, 92. 92. 87 to 92, you were Chief Commissioner. But before then, even though you dropped out of failing year 10, you'd become a barrister. You'd led um, some quite intellectual pursuits like leading the fingerprinting area of Victoria Police. And you even led the prosecution department of Victoria Police. I decided uh, when I was a detective that I ought to do something about my lack of formal education. So I did the, it was the matriculation um, higher skills certificate because I did two subjects by correspondence one year and two the next. Mm. And that qualified me to do law at the University of Melbourne. Mm. So I completed the four-year degree in six years part-time and ended up with an honours degree. And then uh, Victoria Police were in something of a bind because law had passed that serious sexual offences had to be prosecuted by someone with legal qualifications. Uh, the only problem for the police force is they didn't have anyone yes. who had been admitted to practice. I was the second serving member, actually, to be admitted to practice. The other was a guy called Bert Collins who was admitted to practice a few weeks before he retired at age 60. Yes. And so uh, I finally got approval to attend a thing called the Leo Cousin course for continual legal, edu legal education that took the place of articles. And uh, when I completed that, I was admitted to practice. Um, I was given a full practicing certificate mm. uh, by the uh, Law Institute because of my previous experience in policing and so on. So I actually uh, suffered or incurred a benefit uh, mm. by being a member of the police force and getting a full practicing certificate. So uh, ultimately that led to me being uh, called upon to establish the Police Prosecutions Division mm. uh, in the rank of Chief Inspector. And that, so you're the man behind, when we go to court because we were fined and we we're fighting the fine, you're the guy, you were the guy on the other end trying to get us convicted. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, How do you? My, my first full-time exposure to prosecuting uh, was at a court at Preston, which was set up to do the preliminary hearing, the committal proceedings for serious indictable offences. Mm. I worked with a guy called Bill Horman, who also had an honours degree from Monash mm. in law. And uh, in the first year, I know we presented 513 cases and lost five. Oh, wow. So we were, you were successful. Quite, quite happy about our performance. <clears throat> uh, is that normal or is that high compared it's a, to... It's a pretty high ratio, I think. Okay. Um, but um, we were, in effect, on even terms with uh, the barristers and solicitors appearing. And I must say that... Many of those barristers and solicitors um, really uh, should have been entitled to demand a fee. You said that in the book, they should not have been able to charge a fee, they were that bad. No, they, they were. Uh, I spent 12 months tutoring in criminal law and procedure at Monash University after yeah. I uh, was admitted to practice. Yes. And uh, when I was introduced to the Dean of, of Law at the time, apart from the formal greeting, he said in fairly colourful terms that they were turning out lawyers who had great theoretical knowledge and very little idea of how to implement that in practice, and he had to do something about it. So he had three police uh, tutoring there, and uh, 
one of the senior law lecturers at the end of the year said that he had run a computer program to check the results yes. of the tutor streams, yes. thinking the academic tutors would have better results overall and found that the three streams tutored by police actually performed better than the academic tutors. Yes. And I think the Dean of Law had that in mind because uh, we were able to, to give people an idea of how things worked in practice. Mm. There's an example of that uh, where I gave the class, and the law's different now, but a, a question in relation to uh, blood alcohol content mm. while driving, mm. and uh, asked them what they do with their clients on the phone, saying, oh, I've been stopped, what do I do now? Gave them the circumstances, and they all said, oh, walk away, walk away, walk away. And I said, well, 20 minutes later, your client's back on the phone and said, look, I'm staring through the bars. Because they walked what away. What do I do now? Yeah. And uh, everyone said, oh, we had a wrongful arrest, and they carried on. And I said, look, do you think it might be an idea to ask what he's charged with? Uh, oh, well, what's he charged with? So driving under the influence. In those days, same power of arrest as for felony. Right. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. You know, walking away wasn't such a great idea after all. Would have been better to talk to the police. Would, would have been better to cooperate and uh, face a lesser charge yes. in all probability. Yes. And uh, not be staring through the bars, not be actually locked up. Ah. So it was just that understanding of, of looking at all the ramifications of issues and not jumping to conclusions, I think was very important to turning out lawyers with a better grasp of how things actually worked in practice. So, okay, so this is interesting because you led Victoria Police, but you had a long career of working within it on the ground. And then after you, we had a number of chief commissioners very short tenures, some of them, immediately after you, but noticeably, they kind of fly in, drop in external type commissions until later on was what, Ken was the next one that was kind of on the ground. I and was very conscious of the need to develop a succession plan and I had two deputies and either of them would have made unruled chief commissioners. Yes. And uh, they were ignored for political reasons. By the Liberal Jeff Kennett by the, government? By the Kennett government. And that was sad because our professional police and uh, they would have performed according to their oath of office regardless of what colour the government was. And uh, I, that really, in my view, set the police force back. I'm not criticising Neil Cromrie. Uh, he was a member of Victoria Police. He went to Queensland and roughly assistant commissioner rank and came back. Uh, it, it is not aimed at, at Neil Cromrie, but the fact of the matter is that Someone like Grennan Crimmins or John Frame uh, could have immediately stepped into the shoes, yes. knew the direction that the force was taking, could have carried it on, and we wouldn't have then suffered uh, some of the appointments that, we, and I say that advisably, some of the appointments we did later. Because if people don't understand community policing, if they don't come from a community policing background, if they haven't started at the bottom and had to work their way up, they're not really uh, in a position to understand what their troops do on the ground and how the system operates. So can you explain to me why we had aberrations, if I can say that, such as Christine Nixon, who did have a long career in VicPol and yet still did some, you know, according to your book, some terrible things to the police force? I was supportive of her appointment. I could see no reason why uh, a female couldn't be chief commissioner, but she just failed to perform on every level. She pushed the... Uh, um, role of, of women to the point of absurdity right. and uh, a lot of the women resented that. I had a long conversation one night with a, a senior constable, a policewoman, who said, look, if we're promoted, we want to be promoted on our merits. We don't want to be promoted simply because we're female. Right. You know, we can hold our own. Right. And in fact, I was responsible for the 
appointment of the first female assistant commissioner in Victoria, in Australia, actually, right. who just happened to be gay. Right. So if anyone thinks I was a misogynist or homophobic, you're quite wrong. Yes. And the reason that uh, she was appointed was that she was the best person for the job, right. and that was the, the sole criteria. As it should be. And uh, so... Um, and Christine Nixon also came down on the idea that Victoria Police was as corrupt as New South Wales. Victoria Police has never been anywhere near as corrupt as New South Wales, and I worked there for two Ooh. months, so I saw it firsthand. Okay. Because you talk a lot in this book about, and I mentioned in the intro, that corruption has annoyed you in particular. In fact, you said in your book that you, you can't understand why someone would sell their soul for the dollar. So before you tell me about New South Wales, why does corruption bother you so deeply? I guess it was my upbringing. And um, when I first started work, I worked as a clerk uh, for the local shire in country town. Mm. And uh, the average wage for men was about £15 a week. And the shire secretary I worked with was earning £38.10. Oh. He bought his quarter load of bread from the bakery opposite every night and paid for it out of petty cash and wrote it off as stamps. Uh -huh. And I th the way I was brought up, that was totally abhorrent. Okay. And on another occasion, I was given the job of cleaning out the, the um, storeroom, which was safe. Yes. Uh, strong room. And I found a 20 pound note that had been there for some time and handed that in, of course, and never saw it go through the books. Uh-huh. And uh, I just thought that was deplorable. I wasn't brought up like that. I was brought up to be honest. We might have been dirt poor, but, but brought up to be honest. And it really got under my skin. And then I saw some things in the, in the force. I arrested an SP bookmaker out of my area when I was stationed at Turak. Yeah. Rode the, the station, pushed bike down the lane and nabbed the bookie red-handed. Took his bedding sheets, yeah. all of the evidence... And uh, there was hell to pay because uh, the senior sergeant at the time in charge of Paran was obviously on the take okay. and getting uh, a kickback from the SP bookmakers in the area. Yeah. And uh, when I got to court, this fellow had three prior convictions, which meant automatic jail. I gave my evidence. He was convicted. The magistrate, anything known, and the prosecutor simply said, nothing known, Your Worship. Uh, and I was dancing around the court thinking, he's got three prior convictions. What do you mean? Nothing known. Yes. And then I was offered 20, 20 pounds. You bri uh, bribe. Afterwards. Yeah. And I was absolutely delivered. What were they giving you the money after the event? For? Well, to try and keep me quiet. Oh. But in fact, there was really no avenue of complaint in sure. those days. Sure. Uh, I had another instance of a detective. Um, I was actually fingerprinting a, a place that had been abandoned by a bunch of crooks. And a detective came in, men's clothing, new everywhere, stripped off, changed, dressed himself and resplendently left. I reported it to my boss and in the end he said, look, you're not going to get anywhere. You know, you, you, there's nothing you can do about it. And, and that again appalled me. That's not what policing's about. Okay. Let's go back for a second into why it annoys you so much and then let's talk about that crazy judge who left in the middle of a case went to another court, dismissed yes. it and came back. Oh my goodness, that is clearly corrupt. Anyway, why, why, I ask you why it annoys you so much. You said it's because it was the way you were raised. Were your parents religious or was it a, a sense of secular morality? My father wasn't particularly religious. My mother was. Um, but I don't think it really had anything to do with religion. I just thought that um, they were just honest people. 
So what gives you the strength then to hold on to that strong conviction? Because it's not about religion, which is longer. It's just about your very narrow 10-year raising as a child, and yet it's so strong within you. Look, I, I don't know if I'm an honest man, because unless you've had a decent offer, you can't really say. <laughs> but, but, but I just can't envisage yeah. selling my integrity, because once it's gone, it's gone. You can never recapture it. So, do so I, yes. you know, it's just... It's just within me. I just feel that you know one should do the right thing simply because it's the right thing. Right. And uh, taking taking bribes is just an as, as far as I'm concerned. So for anyone in any in any occupation. Yes, but see, police is interesting because it's your job to fight the very thing we're talking about. So that's what you swear to do. Yeah. You swear to uphold the right. You swear to maintain the law. That's that's what you, you know you, you put your name to. Right. And uh, to Go against that just offends me mightily. Do other police members, by and large, within police forces around Australia, feel the same way? Just a sense of right and wrong. This is because I've noticed a pattern when I talk to police officers like yourself that that, that you all have this burnies that that's not right. A strong sense of justice. I think it's varied from force to force. Okay, it was often said about New South Wales or the best police force money could buy. <laughs> All right, come on, um, tell me about New South Wales. Okay, so it was quite corrupt in the 60s, 70s. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, there was one stage, I believe, uh, where if someone had their car stolen, it was recovered by the police, they had to pay something to the Widows and Orphans Fund to get their car back. Um, I spent two months working up there. I went out with the Vice Squad, and I went out with the Consulting Squad, and uh, I was there was no place for a senior constable from Victoria, I can tell you that. Yeah, in, those stories are in detail in the book. Have you seen Training Day, the movie with Denzel Washington? It's, it's a, oh, no, I haven't. It's no. a movie, it's probably 20 years old now, but it's based on this idea of how corrupt some of the vice squads and the undercover drug-type squads can get because the risk is higher for them to go corrupt, isn't it? Undercover work is, is quite difficult and very dangerous. And there's always a... Um, the possibility of contamination yeah. because they have to circulate in criminal circles and they have to, in that role, overlook some things that are happening in the to pursue the bigger picture. There's always the um, possibility that they'll cross the line yes. and, uh, and won't be able to be you know, recovered. Uh, sure, they have to ignore some things that they would, you know, in normal circumstances, immediately react to, but, but they've got a role to play. Um, they have to infiltrate a gang. That means you might see lots of things happen that you know normally you wouldn't allow. But um, the greater good comes from infiltration of these gangs and bringing them down. Um, but they need to be handled very carefully, mm. and particularly with the drug scene, because if they're you know in a situation where they feel that they really have to use drugs to fit in, yeah. they can they can go down very, very quickly. So they have to be really very carefully managed. And you, you had a run-in with one of your team when you were Chief Commissioner, where you, uh, can you tell us that story? When they tried to push back and said, we're a protected species, and you lifted up your pen. Yes, uh, one particular squad, um, I'll go back, uh, it's, it's very topical actually of, of recent years uh, with Gobbo, but uh, we had informers, informers were paid and there was no system of registration, there was no accountability, and uh, I suspected there were some long lunches happening 
in the guise of paying informers. Mm. And one particular squad was uh, at the forefront of my thinking in relation to that. So I introduced a scheme where police with informers were required to put their details mm. in a sealed envelope, give them to the chief superintendent in charge of the CIB. Mm. Uh, after a while, I conducted an audit and I had Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and Pluto. And, and, um, later. Yeah. and so I said to the Assistant Commissioner Crime, go down and read the Riot Act. And they sent a very rude message back. Not the thing to do. To the boss. So I took up a pen and 20 minutes later the squad was abolished. Well, you shouldn't tell your boss to go and get effed. No, uh, no, it, it wasn't wise, uh, <laughs> I would say, but uh, I think it put the fear of God into all the other squads mm. who might have been bending the rules. Mm. Um, and I didn't find out until years later, it actually put the fear of God into uh, some of the interstate police forces uh, who suddenly realised uh, that their bosses could do the same for them just as easily. And did their bosses step up? By and large, I think they did. I know John Avery, who was the commissioner in New South Wales for the first part of my tenure as chief in Victoria, was working his backside off trying to curb corruption. Right. And he had to deal with people like Roger Rogerson, who's now <laughs> in jail for murder. And uh, Rogerson was something of a cult figure in New South Wales. Mm. And John Avery used to tear his hair out over the, the way that um, other members reacted to Rogerson, who was just a dyed-in-the-wool crook mm. and now convicted murderer. So he was, he was working very hard to try and clean New South Wales up, but it was a monumental task because uh, not so much the uniform branch, but uh, in the detective and specialist sections, um, then uh, clearly, and that started with, with, with politics. Right. Neville Wren, as far as I'm concerned, was the biggest crook in New South Wales. Oh. Askin before him, uh, the opposite political persuasion, I've got no doubt, was a, was a crook. Right. It was actually a cartoon when I was... A, appointed as the first Assistant Commissioner in Internal Investigations in Victoria because Neville Rann had said that if there was organised crime in New South Wales, you could call him Marmaduke. And Tanberg uh, did a little uh, sketch, uh, supposedly depicting me, saying we don't have much use for him here, Marmaduke. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. But, uh, so definitely was there in New South Wales. Did they succeed in cleaning it up and where is New South Wales Police Force today? Yeah, there's been a Royal Commission which uh, nailed some uh, crooked members' hides to the wall. There was a suicide. There were a number of charges with criminal offences. Mm. Uh, there's been a, a concentrated effort to actually clean up, I think, all the police forces. I mean, even the advent of an internal investigations department, which mm. I was called upon to head, mm. uh, there was a bureau before of 15 senior members. Uh, I expanded it to 55. Mm. Uh, the, the advent of... Uh, Police Complaints Authority, which was a total failure, but then a Deputy Ombudsman Police Complaints. Uh, and when I was Chief, the Deputy Ombudsman Police Complaints had the power to examine outside complaints. Mm. I asked would they do the same for internal complaints, even though it wasn't mm. part of their mandate, mm. and they agreed. Okay. So I wanted accountability. I wanted every step of the, at every part of the police force to be totally accountable. And... Uh, I also tried to stop people going back to specialist squads, like vice and, and drugs particularly. i rotate them. Rotate others through those areas because my view was that good operators, you know, competent police would soon come to grips with the, the nuances and, and needs of those particular specialist branches. Yes. 
And if you kept people moving through those, there wasn't a chance to form unholy alliances yes, and uh, yes. for corruption to rear its ugly head, yes. as it did after I retired in the drug squad, oh, where the senior sergeant in charge went to jail. Okay. So uh, I was thwarted in that by the police service board who kept overturning appointments because people had had previous experience in those areas, and that was the one thing that, as far as I was concerned, ruled them out. Right. Um, Go to, go to some other area, use your expertise, spread your knowledge, but don't go. keep going back to the same area. Yes. See, this is one of the things, one of the million things you've done with your your career. You also head up the internal investigations branch of Victoria Police and expanded it, and so you're to, true to the theme of your life, fighting this corruption type thing wherever you found it. You had some interesting experiences there, but you were only in for only. You're in there for 30-something years and you led the place and then afterwards you're saying some some ugly things read their head again. How much change do you think you actually had long-term on the momentum of Vic Pole, and how much stuck? Over the last 20 years, not much stuck at all, I don't think, uh, in many respects. I don't think corruption was tolerated by any means, but I think we had a succession of uh, chief commissioners who had very little knowledge of the history and culture of Victoria Police. They had no experience of community policing. This is after you you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, the last yeah, 20 years. Last 20 years yeah. Yeah. And um, if, if, if you might want to change the culture, but if you want to change the culture, you've got to know what you're changing. Mm. Someone said to me once, uh, it's hard to know when you're there if you don't know where there is. Mm. And uh, so there, I think there was just... Uh, a succession of really poor appointments. I mean, Christine Nixon, uh, by law at the time of the um, bushfires, was the state coordinator. And she went off and had her hair done and uh, saw a biographer and went to dinner with her friends while 137 or something people died. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, that's just, it begs belief. I just noticed that she's been given an Order of Australia too. Uh, yeah, a couple of days ago. Yeah. Um, I find that disappointing. Do you know what she's doing now for the last 10 years? I, no, I have no idea what she's doing now. She, so my career started in medicine and had a medical clinic and so on. She, and we had a lot to do with the RACGP, the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners is the peak body of you know, medicine. She is now the chairman, chairwoman of the RACGP. She's a police officer and she's been leading that for years now. It's crazy. Uh, yeah, look, I make no apology for saying I don't think she could run a two-hole lavatory. A what? A two-hole two leverage. <laughs> you are a funny guy, and I want to know, as an aside, why your scrotum features so heavily in this book? <laughs> oh, well, only gets a couple of mentions. <laughs> One from a kick that I, that I got, and when I was about eight years... A rabbit trap. I had a, an unfortunate experience with a rabbit trap. It's just, it's just <laughs> I'm funny. Very, I'm very attached to it. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a, a serious man with a serious... Career and where he were talking about rabbit traps and scrotums. All right, so your book stops in 2015 because you wrote it in 2014. So you didn't talk about Graham Ashton. So that was after you finished talking about Ken. Yes, yeah. I did. So and then Ken he got sick, didn't he? And then he, uh, was it, he yes, uh, yes, he did. Uh, I, I think he. In fair, I think he was really struggling a bit. Uh, oh, I think okay. he wasn't all that keen on taking the role in the first place. Okay. So he's gone. Graham Ashton comes in. What, what do you think about Graham? A total failure. Similar to Christine? Total failure. 
Was he yes. a copper? Did he rise through the ranks? Was he an import? I, I mean, we got these people from the from the federal yeah. sphere, and uh, he said when he was appointed that he didn't know anything about community policing. Well, as far as I'm concerned, he spent five years proving it. Really? Um, I was most unhappy with Christine Nixon uh, for a number of reasons, one of which she abolished the police and schools program. Yes. Which was very dear to my heart. It you wasn't an original it. idea, but I introduced it in 1989. Yeah, right. In 2004, the Monash University did an academic study of the program and said it was producing very good results with, in the youth space, but it was being poorly managed. In 2006, uh, Christine had it reviewed and she was told the same thing. It was a good program mm. being poorly managed and so she abolished the program. Right. And six and a half years ago, um, we formed the Community Advocacy Alliance I got together with a retired inspector, Ivan Ray, because we were so unhappy about uh, Vic Pol's approach to blue light and youth in general, youth crime. We said there'd be a crime tsunami based on uh, largely black African youth, nothing to do with their race, nothing to do with their colour, all to do with their behaviour. But every time you say that, you say, oh, you're racist, you're racist, you're racist. Not about race at all, it's about behaviour. And we were unfortunately right. So this is before the gangland stuff, the gang, the yeah, youth well, gangs took out, you were predicting it. It was clear as crystal that there was going to be an enormous problem of these young people who were not getting the sort of moral and ethical training yeah. that could be expected. They come from war-torn countries. They come from you know, very difficult backgrounds. Yeah. They needed something like a police in schools program to show Cultural, that police yeah. in Australia are different from where they'd come from. Oh, to give them a, a sporting chance of being good citizens and many didn't get that training at home, they didn't get it at school, so they didn't get it at all and we know what happened. All the time they were totally disproportionately involved in serious crime like carjackings, violent home invasions and serious assaults. The government and Victoria Police were saying, oh, there's no problem, there's no problem, it's all under control, you know, uh, we're making, Ashton said, we're making lots of arrests. Hang on, too late. Yeah. They're already in trouble. Yeah. You've got to stop them getting into trouble in the first place. Yeah. Ivan and I went to see one of the assistant commissioners after seeing the chief commissioner, and he got his statistical guru in. She trotted out all the statistics and said, kids are getting into trouble between the age of 11 and 13, so we're concentrating entirely on them. Ivan and I walked out of the meeting and said, well, that was a waste of time. They don't even know what their own statistics are telling them. Right. If they're getting into trouble from 11 to 13... There's a need to get to them before they reach that age so yes. they don't get into trouble in the first place. Yes. And there was just no understanding of that. And so that was really when we put a lot of effort into forming the Community Advocacy Alliance Incorporated. So so this is under Graham Ashton, a lot of the African youth violence out, broke out in Victoria. Yes. Yeah. Is that less... It's not in the news as much now. Has that been solved by... Not solved, but is that come down thanks to... Well, I think it is reducing. Uh, it will reduce more because my uh, understanding is that uh, the current Chief Commissioner, Shane Patton, is about to reintroduce a police in schools program, a properly structured formal program yeah. that teaches the basic tenets of good citizenship. So this is important because you mentioned to these new Australians who either they, they were born in but that perhaps their parents only just arrived to Australia or they've themselves come at a young age... Their perception of police from the war-torn countries they're from would be corrupt and don't trust them. And, they're and violent. Violent, right. So they, that... I mean, sorry, that, can I just yeah. go back to when we had the influx of Vietnamese? Yeah. 
by and large, very, very easily assimilated, very good citizens. But I remember going to a police station uh, and a number of young Vietnamese had been arrested and one was visibly shaking. Really? And I said to him, you know, you got something wrong with you, what, what's wrong? And he looked at me and he thought he was going to be taken out into the backyard and shot. Wow. And I said, oh, hey, look, settle down, you know, we don't do that sort of thing. You know, you'll be treated with dignity. You'll be charged because you've got criminal offences, but you'll be treated with dignity. Uh, and uh, I guess that carries through to, you know, the, the problem we've had of more recent times. Uh, when your expectations of police are that you'll be bashed, killed, whatever, then uh, it's no wonder that they don't readily relate right. to police members. And a police in schools program does a lot to solve that problem, to show that police are human, you can interact with them, they're there to help, they're not yes. there to oppress. Yes. Um, there can be a, an enormous change through that. So this is the importance of the police in school program. It's not just a... Because I had it in school in New South Wales, and it did humanise you guys. But you have a good point for these new Australians. They really need to say that. Right, now, you just raised Shane Patton. He's our current top dog. Chief Commissioner of Police. He's only been in for a year or so, right? A bit under a year. So anything he does is not going to have effect for a while, right? Like the reason why I asked you earlier about what has stuck with your time is the decisions you seem to be making, like um, police and schools program, that doesn't have an immediate effect on crime. That might have an effect in two years. No, that, that's, that's strange because in 1989, when I introduced the program, uh, the state government was bankrupt, so I couldn't get any more resources. So I looked at what I might do to reduce demand, and police in schools was one of those things that I thought might have a long-term effect. But what I found, when we put the program into schools, the amount of petty crime, uh, graffiti, uh, vandalism, dropped dramatically in those areas. How soon, though? After a well, year? Within a matter of three or four months. Oh, quickly. Okay. Absolutely. And okay. uh, and that surprised me. I hadn't expected that. Yeah. I was playing a long, you know, a long game. But yeah. uh, I was pleased, of course. The senior stars in charge of stations were usually very much opposed to police in schools initially, but they very quickly became the strongest supporters because they could see that it was reducing their workload for their people on the ground. Okay. So uh, it's not, not just a long-term benefit. It is short-term benefit and enormous long-term gain. So if Shane brings this in now, uh, he, will, he will see things turn quite quickly within the first year or so. We should see some stats. I'm sure we'd see some improvement uh, in things like vandalism, petty crime, graffiti, those sorts of things. Okay. Uh, I'm absolutely confident of that. But, but more importantly, you'll see... Um, a much better relationship between young people and police. Yes. I mean, I've, I've, had, I've had police tell me uh, they still have young people, or well, not so young people now, people in their 40s or whatever, uh, say hello to them in the street because they're involved in that program. Okay. Uh, go out of their way to say hello. And that's, that's a, a big win as far as I'm concerned. It is. And what about, okay, let's go to the issues that we're having recently with... Uh, with chief health officer directions and protests and so on now in Victoria, a lot of what I'm noticing 
is the undoing of this goodwill that we're talking about. That's certainly happening. There's no question about that. And uh, one of the, the reasons, one of the many reasons, is that we are told everything's based on health advice, but that's never made public. Now, why should that not be made public, that health advice? Because I strongly suspect, like the curfew, that not based on health advice at all. We, uh, in my mind, uh, have a government that's inept. We had over 800 deaths because of their uh, inability to consult the people that knew how to deal with a pandemic. We had emergency management Victoria set up. There'd been a plan in place to deal with any kind of disaster for 50 years. Yeah. It, they were not consulted. Right. Politicians went their own way, did not know what they were doing. The idea of having private security guards in quarantine hotels going home to their families every night was an absolute recipe for total disaster, and that's what happened. Mm. Uh, but we've also not just in relation to COVID, you know, we've had uh, red shirts wrought, we're, as far as I'm concerned, clearly criminal. I've also seen a leading Queen's Council's opinion that it was clearly criminal based on the officer's report. No charges. We've had no member of parliament having his dogs ferried around. We've had a printing wrought. Uh, we've had $1.2 billion wasted on not building a road and it's the only freeway in the world that ends at a pedestrian crossing. I thought that you were a Labor supporter, according to your critics. What are you doing, hammering the Labor government? Oh, no, I'm not political. And that might sound strange, having bear in mind what I've just said, but mm. what I want to see is a competent, ethical, um, accountable government. And you don't think And I don't that? care what persuasion it is. Yeah. If it had been the other mob in, I would be saying the same kinds of things if they were making those kinds of, uh, of decisions. Okay. You know, we, we need really ethical, accountable, competent government, and, and we're not getting it. Okay. So what, do you, what is the police's role in this? Because you speak a lot in this book. Your job is to implement government policy, amongst other things, protect the community and so on. I get it. But implementing government policy is key. What do you do when the government policy is... Th this the arresting of some of these business owners who admittedly were breaking show directions, but their, their lives are being destroyed and they have no other way of speaking on the, the weekend. The 2013 Police Act, I believe, gave the government much more operational control over the Victoria Police than had ever been the case before. Before that, um, there were, I guess, lines of demarcation that were understood, separation of powers that were understood, not necessarily all written down, but uh, but the Chief Commissioner was responsible for all the operational decisions of the police force. And the government, sure, could make policies and there was a, a duty to implement those policies, but it could be done with some discretion. That seems to me to be all gone. Oh. Now it's, it's black and white. There's an offence, therefore police are required to act. Except even that, when we come to Black Lives Matter demonstration, uh, was an aberration. Uh, given by the government, it seems, and provided to do what they liked uh, and and required police to stand by. Now, if the Chief Commissioner had had the gumption at the time, Ashton, he would have said, not going to happen if they turn up without 
or in contravention of the Law Wheel Act. And squash the protests. He, he should have uh, said, look, you're the government. Yeah. You can't override the law. Yeah. It's promulgated. Yeah. If you want to change it, that's your prerogative. Sure. But while it's there, we'll enforce it. And, uh, and of course, he, he didn't have the, the balls to do it. Yes, but there were police officers, I've seen photos, kneeling with the protesters at the BLM rally in Melbourne last year. That's another thing that rankles with me. Um, police should not be involved in any kind of demonstration, the gay march or anything else. They, they should not be participants. You can say what you like, but they are there in the end to keep the peace mm. and to enforce the law. And uh, anything that departs from that or colours that in any way, shape or form should be avoided. So there's that need. They're umpires. So they need for need to be impartial. So can you explain to me the seeming seeming hypocrisy of Vic Pol with protests, even under our friend Shane Patton, current commissioner, where I know BLM rally in Melbourne was under Graham Ashton, but then when Shane... Oh, no, wasn't it under Shane or was it under... No, under, no, under Ashton. Under, under Ashton, all right. So now with Shane, though, we have had big arrests that have been documented on this channel and others. Uh, I was at the Queen Victoria Markets buying lobster that day that the Marshmallow Men, Michelin Men came through, and I saw with my own eyes police aggressing against shoppers. That, that was under Shane Patton. So what is he doing? What well, people? I guess those people that they were aggressive towards were in fact breaking the law. Okay. So if you break the law, you can't expect police to sit idly by and, and do nothing because that's what's been happening in the past and that really isn't acceptable. So do you if need anyone to sets them? out deliberately to break the law, then uh, I don't have much sympathy for them. Uh, you know, if they uh, um, are arrested or whatever, yeah, that's an aggressive act, I suppose. Arrests always are. But if they don't break the law, they don't suffer those kinds of issues. Now, you can look at particular incidents and say, well, it could have been handled better, they could have been a little bit gentler and so on and whatever, but I guess police too get sick of going along and sort of dealing with the same renter crowd time in, time out. And there are people who are professional agitators who Absolutely. love to be involved in yep. those sorts of things and they're there to cause trouble. They're yes. not there to demonstrate. Yes. They're there to cause trouble. And uh, so I guess police get a bit short-tempered at times too. So what about the ones who are not the renter? I know I, I totally agree with you. There are the rascals out there who will just push you guys. I get it. But I'm talking about the small business owners. I'm talking about the, the normal people like Harry's who opened his store because he was struggling. I'm talking about Andrew Lloyd Webber, who in the UK has just declared yesterday that he will open his theatres regardless of police enforcement on June the 21st. These sort of people who are desperate... But, but that's an issue for government, not the issue for Victoria Police. The government need to look at their edicts. I mean, just in the last few weeks, we, we've had cases of COVID in Melbourne. We had Mildura lockdown. My little old hometown of about you know, 800 people in Southern Mallee, uh, they haven't had a case within 200 kilometres of them and they're locked out all running around wearing masks when they go out. I mean, it's an absurdity. So what should police in Mildura do, for example, last week when they are under lockdown, couldn't go more than 5Ks from their home? Because that's the law and you're telling me that don't break the law. I'm, I'm not too sure whether that they would have conducted too many checks to see if people were more than 5K from their home. So look the other way. Be because it's um, an area where there are a lot of uh, grapes, fruit blocks. Yeah. 
And some of those people, their nearest shop might be 5k away, or over yeah. 5k away, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. for some of the things that they need. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I expect there would have been a degree of discretion involved there. I don't know, but I suspect there would have been. A um, bit of out of sight, out of mind when they're that far away. But I mean, the very idea of government locking down Mildura when we have COVID in Melbourne yeah. is, in my mind, is just absolutely can't be any much more stupid than that. Well, most most people would agree, or nearly all of us would agree. But there's isn't there a, a contradiction there that on the one hand you're saying, well, you're breaking the law, expect to be arrested, but now you're telling me if you declare in your own mind that that's ridiculous, I'm going to use my discretion and look the other way. Yeah. You're looking, though, at, at crowds as against individuals. Yeah. And I think that might, theoretically might not make a difference, but I think practically it does make a difference. Um, these people are going about their business. They're not out just trying to make a point. Uh, they're not protesting. They're, they're not protesting. You know, um, okay. I had to turn around uh, this morning and drive back only about 50 metres and go inside and get a mask because I found I didn't have a mask in my vehicle. Right. Um, so, yeah. you know, the, if someone said, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I, I forgot to put my mask in the car or whatever, I've got out. I think there is a, a case for discretion, but I do think that discretion, as I said before, has been limited more than it ought to have been. There's one discretion, the one discretion that police will always have, and that's whether they see an offence being committed or not. Ah, uh, I see. Uh, uh, that can never be taken away. But, but okay, let's go back to what you were saying about you think discretion has been legislated now, forced. I think it's been, yeah, it's made it made it more difficult for police to exercise discretion. The Police Act. Yeah. So, so, so when these decisions to say kettle this technique that I only just discovered since moving to Melbourne two years ago, I, I, I'm horrified by it. I understand it for safety, but I've seen them kettle mums anyway. This kettle technique is that is that uh, Shane Patton telling people to do it, or is that the Police Act telling them to do it, or is it the police on the ground deciding I, to I do it? I think the operational decisions made by whoever's in charge on the ground, okay. responding to to what's happening now. You know, one can question the judgment of that. But uh, all I can say is I, I believe those decisions were made in good faith. Yeah. Um, you know, police don't get everything right all the time. Yeah. We all make mistakes. Sure. We try not to keep making the same ones. Mm. Um, but I believe that would be an operational decision from whoever's in charge on the ground. Okay. What do you think about the perception in the community? It may be wrong, but there is certainly a perception that Vicpol is becoming increasingly a political arm of our government. Yeah, I think I think that's probably right uh, because they're required to enforce unpopular laws. Um, and again, I come back to that medical advice, which is kept secret. Uh, not, not, no, we're not privy to that advice. And so I think there's been a disconnect between the public and police. I think that's a big job for Shane Patton is to yeah. re-establish a, a good relationship with the general populace. Now, I know he wants a much more visible police presence, both on the roads and around the shopping centres, and uh, yeah. um, that's going to take time. I think, you know, you, you, it's like turning around a big ship, you know, yeah. you, you take an action here and somewhere down the road things turn, I think. Now he's, he's got a couple of years to, to really right the ship 
um, get things going as he would like to see them going. And remember, a lot of those, well, in fact, the vast majority of those police that he's now un has under his command were brought up in an era that was different, with a quite a different form of policing. So he's got a remedial, lot of remedial work, and I don't apologise for saying that, a lot of remedial work to do to get uh, the, the mindset right in the members that have been you know, really brought under a different policing system. And do you think he will? I'm sure he will. I'm sure he's got the experience and the knowledge and the will yeah. um, to change things. Because you still meet with him, and, and he is one of those people who's risen up through the ranks. He's a, bigger fan, a big fan of community policing. He's been there and done it. He knows what the community needs. He knows what Victoria Police should look like mm. and hasn't for many years. And uh, he's got the capacity. He'll, he will hopefully surround himself with the, the right team to, to really implement changes and we will see a, a, a much more responsive police force to community needs given uh, an amount of time to put that in place. Okay, so can I can I ask your opinion on operational matters? Because you also were uh, a, a com Assistant Commissioner for Operations at one point. I was Assistant Commissioner for Operations and I was Deputy Commissioner for Operations. Okay, so you know about, you, you led like 76% of the pol uniform police force at one point. A little bit more than, uh, as, yes, as... Uh, as Assistant for Operations, as Deputy Commissioner of Operations, I think I had something like 83% of the force. Huge. So let's talk about protests in general, because you, you lay in your book, you talked about the Hazelwood protests, where it was just a show. You know, the cameras turn on, and then they protest, and then the cameras turn off, and it's it's all over. Um, in, that, in that one, uh, as soon as the cameras are off, the police and the, and the picketers, the unionists, played cricket. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> well, th but that is not what we're seeing today. If we, Because I, when I said that Victoria Police is seemingly by some looking like a political arm of the government, that would be a big insult to a commissioner to hear. That's not what you want at all. Absolutely. And yet, if we look at uh, protests and operational things like the Zoe Bueller arrest, which was the lady who was planning uh, a, uh, a protest in Ballarat, and they went into her house and preemptively arrested her, uh, or if we look at the more recent ones of Luke Cornelius, the Assistant Commissioner, seems to be handing out a lot of letters to say don't go to uh, a protest tomorrow because it's illegal against trade directives. However, this kind of preemptive, I don't want to say intimidation, but it's kind, it is like a, it's something more than what I'm used to seeing from police. Yeah, when you say preemptive arrest, it wasn't preemptive in the sense that she'd already committed an offence. The incitement. Now, yeah, but... Or not have been handcuffed. That was a terrible decision. Well, even beyond made on the, made on the spot. I mean, that was that was really yeah. uncalled for. Uh, but overall, and, you and think that it was... highlighted what was happening. The overall, yeah, that's that's a small. You know, they could have done better. But overall, you think that arrest was okay? Because you're saying it was illegal because she incited. But we're talking about now people being arrested for Facebook posts, and it hadn't even happened yet. We're talking about people getting letters, agitators like RV Yemeni, I get it, agitators, but they're getting visits in the middle of the night with letters saying, don't go tomorrow. This is feeling political to me. Crime prevention's a, a, a big part of policing. And prevention's better than cure. It's like medicine. Mm. And prevention's better than cure any day of the week. Now, if delivering letters, uh, maybe not in the middle of the night, but delivering letters... Uh, and it depends on circumstances, of course. 
uh, is a better alternative, I think, than having to arrest people the following day. Okay. So um, anything that prevents people committing offences, I think, is not a bad thing. Okay. Um, I can't see that that's uh, an activity that ought to bring any discredit. Uh, quite the opposite, I think. I think the force should be given credit for trying to prevent people committing offences. But, but then um, when they go to the protest the next day, none of them get arrested. So it's like it was a show. This is what annoys yeah. me. I would rather they go hard or soft, but not they're doing this half-half approach where the night before they're very intimidating, coming in the middle of the night, but then the next day I'm watching them walk around with the same I people. I think there's a tendency now to, to go harder uh, than there has been in the past. Okay. I think they'll be less willing to excuse people committing offences. Right. And I don't see a problem with that because, uh, after all, if the law's there, you, know, you don't have to like it, but you yeah. need to obey it. Okay. Now, you can argue that some of those laws need changing, but that's a matter for Parliament. If you don't like uh, what they are, you know, get a different government and, and work for change, but work within the the parliamentary and, and the, you know, the electoral system rather yes. than outside. And are there any circumstances in which you would say a police officer has a, a, a moral duty not to follow an order or not to follow a, a law if the law was crazy enough? That's a, that's a very difficult question. I can put it in a different context. When I was Deputy Commissioner of Operations, I was part of the Standing Advisory Committee for Protection Against Violence, which right. was a state commonwealth body. Yes. And uh, I was at a discussion uh, and the situation was related to terrorism and aid to the civil power by the Defence Force. Yes. And in the particular circumstances outlined, uh, terrorists started to kill people and um, I was asked what I'd do and I said I'd immediately send in the Special Operations Group to kill the terrorists. Right. And I said, oh, but, but you haven't got you know, the proper authorisation. Right. And I said, I don't care. Deal with me as you wish afterwards. Right. But what I'm going to do is send the people in to solve the problem because I'm not going to stand idly by waiting for a piece of paper while people are killed. So morally, I could not have stood by and allow people to be killed simply because I didn't have the authorisation to act. Um, so there, I guess there are circumstances where, you know, morally, uh, you, you can't commit yourself to enforcing what the, the law is, but in that case, you resign. You resign, yeah. If you, if you can't, you know, and you won't do something that you're required, then you simply resign because um, you, you've got no other choice. And you've been prepared to do that in your book. You talk about you've stood for these things and you've been willing to resign. Well, let me give you a real life example. Right now, gyms are not allowed to open under the Chief Health Officer directives. However, they've had over 6.4 million check-ins since the last lockdown. And they've had zero cases of community transmission backed up by mainstream epidemiologists and infectious disease experts. However, the law says they can't open. These are small people that I've been talking to, I've had them on the show, uh, can't pay their bills. Yeah, that's, that's a directive apparently of the Chief Health Officer. Uh, I say apparently because I'm not certain that in fact that the health advice is to close gyms. But again, uh, if there's fault there, and there is, and obviously uh, it's 
by the government uh, reacting in a way that's just not logical or reasonable. And so what you do is uh, the next time you get a chance is you replace the government. Now, that also creates a problem. I believe that we've currently got a corrupt, inept government. I make no bones about it. We have no way of curtailing their time, term in office. And if we had a recall petition, direct democracy, where we could get a certain number of signatures, uh, which would require a government to go to an election, then maybe we could overcome some of the problems like this, that uh, seemingly uh, mindless decisions. But at the moment, the uh, governments are there for four years and uh, there's nothing we can do as a population about it. Yeah. So, so the Community Advocacy Alliance, we've been saying, look, direct democracy, we should be able to have, and it's something that operates in a number of places around the world. Yes. We should be able to recall, at least force a government that we a large number of people, and you can argue about what percentage it has to be, yes. can require an election to be held. We should be able to put governments back to the polls to see whether they still have that support of the public. Okay. But before we go deeper into recall elections, if we look at the, the, the directives, which are in the stay safe directions now from the CHO, uh, we can't wait for, not me, but a gym owner who can't pay their bills can't wait until November 22. So they're going to, some of them I know of, I'm not going to say the names, are quietly going to open, which is illegal. So based on the context of everything we're talking about, one of the most disappointing things I could imagine is seeing Vic Paul go in and closing down these gyms, even though technically that's what they I'm should I'm sure do. it's not something that police would want to do, but if they're required, if it's brought to their notice and they're required to act, then they'll act. They don't have any choice. Okay. Except to resign. Um, that's right. I mean, uh, but I... I am concerned about the way in which the government has handled this pandemic from start to finish. It's been marked by inexplicable decisions and incompetence. So can we just separate uh, Shane Patton and, and Vic Pohl from the government for a second? When we see Vic Pohl enforcing directives, how much should we think that's Shane Patton putting his boot on us and how much should we think it's Dan Andrews putting his boot on us? I think Shane will be Shane Patton will be having some influence. As for example, uh, we've had no ring of steel around Melbourne this time. Yes, because um, of the police union. I, I believe because um, Shane Patton has simply told the government that it's not going to happen. Oh, really? He can't. He hasn't got the resources to do it. Now, if I'm wrong about that, so be it. But uh, but I. I firmly believe that that indication has been given to government. And I guess, uh, I mean, I had a weekly meeting with uh, the four police ministers I uh, had to work with, and uh, um, one can defend some things. Um, they wanted to take $55 million off the budget one year, and I pointed out the ramifications, and they decided a week later that it wasn't a good idea. So you fought um, back. So Shane could fight back. But, but you have to do it you know, within the confines sure, of, sure. of the minister's office. Sure. You can't you know, really flash headlines. Although before every state budget, I demanded 2,000 extra police quite publicly, uh, knowing I wasn't going to get them, but hoping I would keep what I had. Mm. Mm. Ambit <laughs> um, claim, as they say. Ambit claim. Well, yes. I mean, we had need for every one of them, but, mm. Uh, mm. but because the government couldn't, 
pay them. Uh, we were never going to get them, but I just wanted to make sure I hung on to what we had. So I re rejected a global budget where I was given a certain amount of money and told manage it as you like. I said, no, no, no. You fund the people because that's the major oh, just, expense, mm. well over 80%, mm. and we'll argue about the rest. Okay. okay. And when that changed under the Kennett government, and Neil Cromley had to deal with that, he lost from 10,000 members, he lost 996 in four years right. because he was given a, a sum of money and said, manage it as you choose, and, of course, had to lose people. Sorry. Yeah, so, so I'm concerned primarily for the image of Vic Paul here. I'm only new to Victoria two years, but I have been trying to encourage people to see Victoria Police as human. I've been trying to, you know, I've had Ivan Ray on the show. I've got you on the show. I've been trying to get people to understand it's not directly the police that are your enemy. If you don't like what's going on to the government, but you guys are not making it easy for me. Uh, Matthew, I go back to the Vietnam War. I stood outside the US Embassy one night. My colleague Frank Green was standing at my shoulder, took a big rock in the head from a peaceful demonstrator. Peaceful demonstrator. Uh, and uh, I would suspect that probably 75% of the police there thought that we should not be in Vietnam. Right. But we had a duty to protect the US Embassy. Right. Which meant opposing the people demonstrating against Australia being in Vietnam. Not a matter of choice, just a matter of duty. Right. So it's, it's really much the same sort of thing. You don't have to like the laws that exist. You might not like the duty you're having to, having to perform, but if you're a sworn member, that's what you have to do. So, yes, it's you know, confronting personally, but uh, yeah. life's full of hard choices. And if the laws get too crazy, you can resign. And that's the only other avenue you've got of protest. Um, I mean, we have a, a police association, a police union. Yes, that's good. Um, they ought to have a role in uh, opposing anything that the government puts up that they consider to be draconian and unfair on their members. I'm not too sure they've got any real teeth these days, but... Uh, they made noise around the Ring of Steel recently, yeah. yeah. yeah I mean... Um, that's an avenue of, of I suppose, protection for the rank and file. Okay, that's good. Or all members of the of the police association, I suppose. Because okay. uh, I have a lot of serving members contacting me now privately off camera, of course, saying that they are concerned that they're becoming one of the baddies of history, where they're going to say I was following orders, and they're saying yeah. I don't know what to do. And the whole the whole cause of that is government ineptitude in handling the pandemic. Okay. So I had I almost had someone you know want to punch me recently on the golf course. So I made some critical comment of the government, and he said, "Oh, Daniel Andrews is a hero." Oh, okay, kept us safe. Yeah, he's kept us. You know, he's look look what he's done. He's he's kept us safe. I said, "Hang on, they killed eight hundred people mm. uh, with their ineptitude." And oh no, no, he's a hero. Uh, I don't know how you combat that because. Uh, <clears throat> No hero in my books when over 800 people died because uh, of their inept quarantine system. It happened again last week. Uh, let's talk about recall elections then. So how do we fix the political thing is you're the chairman of the Community Advocacy Alliance and one of the things you're pushing, we've had uh, Steve MacArthur on talking about this, 
A recall election, you've just said, is in operation in various places around the world. But there is something interesting about them. They don't often get up, but they still serve their purpose. That's right. They don't. They needn't succeed. Mm. But the very fact that they're there, <clears throat> I think, moderates the behaviour of, of governments and maybe you know, local governments mm. and individuals. Mm. Um, so it's uh, sort of Damocles, I suppose, uh, if... Uh, there's the possibility that the government could be called to account early, then I think they think more carefully about the decisions that they make. And how would this get in as a, as a barrister, as a lawyer? Can you educate me on the process? Would it be simply oh, it would need to be legislated. And that's it? So it passes yeah. the parliament? Legis- legislated. We're done. And it's, and it's done. It's not a constitutional change requiring... No, I don't believe so. I think it's just a, a legislation... Um, yeah. I can't see anything in the Victorian Constitution that would preclude introducing legislation of that kind. Okay. And so once we get over X number of votes, percentage, whatever it is, uh, the government's forced back to an election. And that would be an official... Like, it wouldn't be just a Facebook poll. It would be through the AEC or somewhere. Oh, no, no, no. A proper electrical, uh, electoral process. Yeah, sure, sure. Yes. Okay. And that... Okay, so that, that may temper what they're doing. They may release some of the health advice or they may... Yeah. That's right. If they feel that they're reaching a point where there's an, enough people dissatisfied to put their government in jeopardy... Which is about now, <laughs> Victoria. Well, it seems to be, uh, given all the, the media coverage, that uh, there's... I mean, I would be amazed if this government's re-elected at the next election. I was amazed when they were elected at the last one, frankly, but... Uh, really? But uh, given uh, their track record... Yeah. Uh, 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 failures across the board. I mean, I read this morning that the, the tunnelling that was supposed to be finished um, uh, is now at least two years behind and probably five. Um, and, uh, you know, the level of incompetence just seems to me to be beyond acceptable. Oh, side note, well done for keeping Vicpol within budget all those years. I was heavily criticised by the Confederation of Legal Services when I retired because of that, but uh, but I was rather pleased with the outcome. It's gone, it's gone out of fashion, keeping things within budget. <laughs> all right, can I ask you about, oh, first of all, why you quit? So you said you retired because you couldn't get along with Jeff Kennett personally, not because no, you No, that was only one, one small part of it. Uh, okay. uh, uh, in fact, it was costing me thousands of dollars uh, to go to work. What? Interest rates at the time were very high. Yeah. When I retired, I was paying, of course, a large amount of superannuation. Yeah. I'd reached the limit of superannuation I could um, receive. I was paying a huge amount of tax. And in my first year of retirement, one small investment returned 51.3%. Okay. Um, 17, 18... 20% yeah. was common. Yeah. So it was literally costing me thousands of dollars to go to work. Oh. I also bore in mind that my predecessor, Mick Miller, said that he stayed too long. And I was very conscious of that as well because uh, it's a demanding position. I mean, in the first year I was Chief Commissioner, I was out 153 times at night speaking to groups. In a year? In a year. That's three a night. And, three a week. And, I mean, I was always in the office at 7.30 the next morning. Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, it was uh, not quite as bad in successive years, but out, you know, probably two nights a week on average, right throughout. Um, so I, I felt that it would be difficult to maintain that kind of pace f for too much longer. Right. So between all of those influences and and <laughs> because Jeff. Uh, Jeff Kennett didn't uh, like me very much. Uh, would have made it hard. Yeah. And I had another problem. I'd given the then police minister, Pat, Pat, Patrick, he became, he was Pat before, but he became Patrick McNamara as the police minister. I'd given him a confidential briefing, he and a guy called Ross Smith. Yeah. And uh, on the basis that it was utterly confidential about a matter, I'd read about it yes. on the front page of the, the, the newspaper on the next day. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, if you can't trust the minister you're working with, yeah. uh, you know, what's, what's the point? And clearly, I couldn't trust him. So there was just a whole number of factors, but mostly financial. Selfishly, I just wish you stayed to avoid what happened over the next uh, 15 years. I think had I anticipated um, what was going to happen, I might have, might have hung on okay. and, and battled through. But uh, oh, that sounds egotistical, but, uh, but so be it. <laughs> All right, let me give you a quote from your book, which I find fascinating. So I want to ask you about leadership. You've led thousands of people and... Um, we seem to be lacking in leadership. It, I've been saying this. In government at the moment, we don't have leaders. We have managers because they outsource their decision-making to health advice. Uh, manage systems and processes, lead people. They're not the same thing. Extricably entwined, but not the same thing. Manage processes and systems, but lead people. You said on page 338, Leadership, in my mind, is setting a direction and then getting others to follow willingly. Throughout history, dictators have usually come to a sticky end. When you said Dan Andrews thinks he's God, and people call him Dictator Dan, are you seeing shades no, of think, this? I think he thinks God's sitting in his seat. <laughs> uh, do you think there are shades of this, in that um, he's not getting people to follow willingly, and you said throughout history they've had a sticky end. Is there a sticky end ahead, politically speaking? Uh, look, uh, I think there's every possibility of, of something of that kind because I think in the end people get thoroughly sick of being, you know, controlled in every aspect of what they do. Yeah. And uh, I just think that, that that wears out after a while and people think, you know, I don't really have to put up with this. Uh, I'm not happy to be dictated to about everything I do. I'm not happy to have to clear every decision I make, uh, you know, with higher authority. And that's one of the things I did in Victoria Police. I pushed the decision-making down to the lowest practicable level because that's where the problem is. Right. The people there generally can solve the problem. Yes. And only, and I'm, I'm quoted by Ray Shuey, Dr Ray Shuey, fairly yeah. often about, it's often better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Mm. So unless one has clearly not the authority to make a decision, then my view is make the decision. Get, get things, make things happen. Um, sure, not everyone will get it right, but you can usually you know, fix up whatever goes wrong on occasion that it does. Yeah. But, but things happen, things move, things change, you, you, get, you know, get the business done. 
And and is that culture in Vicpol there now after you've gone? Because you had a superintendent once send you a, a decision. A chief, chief superintendent. Chief yeah, chief. That's when I was assistant commissioner of operations. He sent me a file about a, a very mundane matter yeah. and said, this is a matter that ought to be determined by a senior member of the police force. And I literally wrote on it, what the bloody hell do you think you are? <laughs> Signed it and sent it back. Mm. <laughs> Never saw it again. So obviously he dealt with it. So what's going on now in Victoria Police? Do you think that they are more like this? I'm absolutely Shane Patton wants to see decisions made where the problem is oh, right. okay. as far as is humanly possible. Okay. Um, and they're crept in over years, the idea that you can only get good decisions by sending things up the line. Yes. Uh, not so. By the right. time it gets up, the decision's made and it comes back, um... The, the, the circumstances have changed. The problem's not what it was. Uh, we take Gargasulis roaring around in Melbourne. The troops on the ground wanted to act, mm. didn't have enough confidence in their leaders mm. to act with their authority, mm. and when they asked for permission to intervene, were denied. Mm. All sorts of problems with that. They should have taken him out. All right, something might have got wrong. He might have run off the road and run over something. He ended up running you know, over people anyway. Mm. Uh, but uh, obviously they did, didn't have enough confidence to make that decision because they didn't think they'd be supported if it went wrong. That's the key. If you want to push decision-making down, I need to know that on the ground I'm going to be supported if I get it wrong. Abs absolutely. If you make a decision in good faith and yeah. it turns out wrong, yeah. why should we be penalised? Why should you yeah. penalise one of your minions simply because they've got something wrong? Mm. No one gets it right all the time. Mm. So, yes, there's got to be enough confidence that I've made a decision in good faith. Um, I'll be supported if it's wrong. Organisations can't work if no one's prepared to make a decision. I've seen people who you know, aspired to be chief commissioner um, go by the wayside because they got to a point where they wouldn't make a decision in case they got it wrong and yeah. then they'd be criticised and yeah. that would affect their chances. Yeah. Never one of my problems. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was always happy to, to win it and wear it. Yeah. Uh, and I made a, a, a couple of shockers, but, uh, yeah. but you know, that's life. I feel like there's parallels with the political system with the Coat Inquiry recently. Oh, oh hey, breaking news, uh, Mr. Lawyer and Chief Commissioner. Uh, the Do you know about the new judges that were appointed to the Supreme Court? St oh. Stephen O'Meara represented Dan Andrews at the Coat Inquiry. He just got announced yesterday, Supreme Court judge. Good job. And the solicitor for the Department of Premium Cabinet, Richard Atwill. Atwill. Seems coincidental. Not one bit surprised. Um, the Community Advocacy Alliance, we've been saying that judges should be appointed by a joint parliamentary committee. Amen. And they should be appointed on contract like everyone else. They should have key really? performance indicators and one of those should be whether they're meeting community expectations in sentencing. What about the separation of powers? And uh, why would it make them less independent during their term of office? Because, because that... Oh, so the guaranteed term, but they want to get a renewal of the term, so they might start to be more political, doing favours. I, I think probably the opposite, uh, because uh, you know if they've got a, a finite term, yes, uh, certainly they'd be more accountable, yeah. and uh, because they're more accountable, they'd be more careful in their deliberations and uh, and perhaps make better decisions because there's a great deal of angst. Okay in the public about some of the sentencing uh, 
Parliament set maximum terms mm. for offences. I've seen crims with multiple convictions for very serious offences, mm. pages and pages. I've never seen one get the maximum sentence. The only time a maximum sentence is issued is for murder, where people get life, usually with a fairly lenient minimum. Um, otherwise, uh, Parliament's wasting their time setting maximum sentences because they're never, ever mm. enforced. Mm -hmm. Now, surely when someone's you know, been in jail, uh, convicted for their fifth armed robbery, you've got to conclude that they're not going to change their ways. Mm. So on the fifth occasion, at least, they get the maximum term for armed robbery. But, what you're but it doesn't happen. Yeah, but what you're suggesting now is goes against what we talked about earlier. You're placing more and more power in the legislature. And we, we, we have to accept that the judiciary sometimes will give us results we don't like, but that gives us a good tension between the, the legislature and the judiciary. Yeah, the, 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 the problem is that the appeal process against inadequate sentences is, is seldom activated because it's costly. And bring it back to a magistrate's court level, I applied numerous times for orders to review when magistrates have simply been wrong in law. Yeah. I was told, no, it'll cost too much. There's no particular point involved other than the fact that the magistrates made a mistake. Yes. So we won't follow it up. So um, life appointments I mean, judges have become a law unto themselves. They have their own sentencing guidelines. Okay. Uh, again, ignoring Parliament. Yeah. And I've heard a judge say, well, he couldn't give more than X sentence because that would be more than the average. Oh. Now, if you follow that logic, you end up That's, with no sentence at all because yes. the average has to diminish over time. Yes. <laughs> so so um, there's, there's no easy way, but I do think that politics can be taken out of judicial appointments to the extent if they're appointed by a joint parliamentary committee, yep. then there has to be some uh, you know, goodwill on both sides yes. to get the right people in the jobs. Yes. So far as the code inquiry is concerned... Yeah. Um, COVID's very, very dangerous because it destroys the memory of people who haven't even had it. <laughs> I thought you were um, about to tell me about the death rates. <laughs> I mean, it's it's beyond belief that people can't remember who decided to employ they remember. Come on. private security. I mean, if you believe that, you could come and see the fairies at the bottom of my garden. Uh, uh, I mean, that's nonsensical. But we had Daniel Anders announce an inquiry who chose the person to head that inquiry? He did, didn't he? Oh, Daniel Andrews. Oh, kangaroo. Cool. Who chose council assisting? Dan? His uh, office? Oh, Daniel Andrews. Oh. Who instructed council assisting? DPC. Oh, the government solicitor's office. Yeah. Uh, if that's not utterly unethical mm. on every level, including for the people who accepted those appointments, who should have said, no, no, look, this needs to be independent... I've never seen anything uh, unethical. They had I mean, to get on the Supreme Court, Kel. It was their <laughs> ticket. I mean, it's just, just incredible. Uh, how, how can you call an inquiry? Then you appoint all the people who are going to inquire into you and say all's fair and above board. And we look at the results. I mean, council assisting only said that there ought to be a finding that uh, it was a, how was it expressed, um, a creeping assumption. Yes, that's right, yeah. That was no creeping assumption. no. I mean, one second-level public servant signed a cheque for $30 million. Yeah. You're trying to tell me he signed that without authority? 
um, the whole situation is just deplorable. Am I correct or incorrect in thinking Victoria does these kind of stupid things more often? Because I grew up in Sydney laughing at Victoria my whole life because you guys seem to be a bit dumb. You know, like you're doing silly stuff like this all the time and they're laughing at us right now with our COVID response. Why is Victoria always a bit... Do I need to put an adjective there? Why, why, you know, why, why are we kind of strange down here? Why are we doing absurd things? Why have we got a reputation of being the weird, young, teenage, unruly child of Australia? Well, I really wasn't aware that we had oh. that reputation elsewhere. But, oh, okay. Uh, but, Certainly in uh, Sydney. I mean, we sit in Victoria and think that everything in, in New South Wales is corrupt. Oh, okay. Uh, obviously, people in New South Wales sit there and think everything in Victoria is weird. Um, okay. Right, well, well then, then we all think Queensland's strange anyway, so uh, it, maybe that's just uh, part of our, uh, our national characteristics. It just seems politically down here we do things like, whether say, say if it's safe schools or whatever the contentious issue is, it's always Victoria standing at the front trying to be the rebel. Yes, um, I hadn't really thought about that too much. Mm. Um, but um, I like to think that for a long time, Victoria was the Victoria was the leading police force in Australia. But uh, when, what years was um, it leading? Well, under Mick Miller, under my predecessor. Okay. Okay. Uh, certainly. Okay. Um, and we hope for it to. I return. think it's it's gone down a long way since then. But uh, so w when you mentioned because uh, you've done a lot of travel as well, you've seen other police forces around the world. What do you think of the Netherlands, where their where their incarceration rate is ten times lower than the US? because of their rehabilitation focus? Yeah, the US is not a typical example of anything, really. Oh. Um, take out the 11 major cities in the US yeah. and uh, their crime rate's negligible, far lower than ours. Okay. So their crime is centred around the 11 major cities. Um, I visited a place called Indiana, Pennsylvania, 40,000 people, and uh, they don't know what crime is. Um, so once you get away from, as I said, those major centres, um, there's not really a problem. They have an enormous problem of guns, of course, mm. um, and that will only be cured when uh, there's some common sense centres into the equation. First thing they need to do is make sure that every gun is registered so they know who's got what, right. and that wouldn't offend the Second Amendment in my view. Yeah, I would agree with that. But anyway... Um, but incarceration's higher. Yeah, incarceration, because I know that much of it's a three strikes and you're out yeah. sort of <clears throat> legal system. If you're up for your third time, you get a fairly decent sentence. Yeah, for uh, minor so, things. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, first time, fairly lenient, second time, moderate, third time, Gone. that's it. You've had your chances. You, you really get a, 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 a very heavy sentence. There's a bit to be said for that. Uh, now, people deserve a second chance. Some people deserve a third chance. But, but surely, surely somewhere along the line, and that's what I argued before, when you've got career criminals who commit offence after offence after offence, surely somewhere along the line you've got to say, this isn't going to do you any good, but it's going to make the rest of our community safer. You're gone. So you've now got the maximum for that offence. Right. So you've spent a lifetime looking at this idea of morality and enforcement and so on. Do you think we should go towards a Netherlands approach where it's about rehabilitation or should we go towards a big stick approach like the US? There are, there are, we, we've, got our, we've got our sentencing wrong in my view. There are too many people in jail. 
a lot of those people are in jail for, for um, non-violent crime. Mm. I believe there's a case for those people, and certainly the ones that are employed, having to pay the victim compensation over a fairly extended period of time and fairly substantial compensation rather than going to jail. Right. So I think we need to, to, to look at the non-violent offenders in a different way from the way that we you know, have been treating them. Violent offenders, I don't have any qualms about saying in the slammer... Protect the community. There's, yeah. there's, no, there's no place for violence. So, um, but long-term fines, that's a great idea. Like if the bankruptcy laws do the same thing, garnishing wages and so that's on. A, uh, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah, okay. Community corrections orders were an interesting concept, but the only trouble is that they're not enforced. Oh. There is not the staff to enforce community corrections orders. Okay. And pretty much, as I understand it, uh, those people either do nothing or do just only what they want to do. Right. And, and that's no penalty at all. But we start as a diversion program for young people. Yes. A cautioning program. Great idea. Yeah. Stop kids getting convictions, keep them away from the criminal justice system for minor offences or yeah. even some you know, fairly serious offences. Yeah. Um, but again, uh, too often there's actually no penalty. Mm. Now, I'm not talking about anything draconian. I'm talking about a kid might lose their mobile phone for a month. Mm-hmm. Um you know, uh, they might have a home curfew for a couple of weeks, mm. a ban from seeing their mates for a couple of weeks. Nothing draconian, but so they know that there are consequences to what they do. Mm. Instead of us being told, no, you've been a naughty girl or naughty boy, don't do it again. Mm. And they think, oh, got away with that, and think it's a joke, which it is. But you're talking about a broader cultural, like you're almost talking about old school values of discipline and... No, I mean, even, even our social worker who was part of our group says that the real problem is that, and she deals with these things every day, that there's often no penalty at all. So people don't really understand. It's not reinforced that they've done the wrong thing. You're talking about at, at law or in the home? Uh, well, um, they've done the wrong thing you know, to commit offence yeah. at law, oh, yeah. but to avoid a conviction... <clears throat> They get caution, but that caution should come with some kind of... But it might be, yeah, I might have to do the dishes yeah. at home uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for, for a week or yeah, just yes. something to remind them that what they've done is the wrong thing. I'm not talking about draconian punishments at all. I'm just talking about just something to reinforce the message about doing the right thing. We're talking... We're, we're mounting an argument against normal parenting over the last 100 years that we've lost... Well, in, in my day, if I had committed some misdemeanour and got a foot up the backside by the local cop, mm. the last thing I would have done is gone home and told my mother and father mm. <laughs> because I'd have got another one. <laughs> 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 uh, but now uh, people storm down to, the, down to the police station and you know, carry on about how their uh, kids been ill-treated. Yeah. Uh, not... And I had a situation a number of times when I was a detective. Uh, I, I took one kid home, committed a theft offence, yeah. and said, you know, little Johnny's committed a theft, and his mother rushed over and started to wail into him and said, why you get caught? Yeah. Why you get caught? Yeah. Hang on, hang on. Yeah, you know, that's not the right. Pull off. Hey, it's not a matter he got caught. Yeah. You should ask him why he did it in the first yes. place. <laughs> 
kids, kids, kids that aren't come parenting doesn't come with a manual. No, there are good that's, parents and there's some very ordinary ones. What? It, look, in a way, it does come with a manual. The conservative value. I'm a young millennial, so I'm in no way loving conservatism. But I'm I'm a parent now, and I'm seeing all the the value in that old school conservative parenting. Those ways of thinking, those those disciplinary things, is amazing. Like I don't know if I should admit it's on there, but I when my kids were little, I smacked them. Don't know if I'm going to go to jail now, but I, I hey, and they're amazing. They're four. One of them's four, five now, and she's beautiful. But it just took that couple of months where she had to learn she can't do that. Yeah, I mean, you can't tolerate um, difficult behaviour. That's, you know, I mean, you, you really need to, to get your kids, give them boundaries, I suppose. Mm. Uh, there are some things that are acceptable, there are some things that aren't. And if something's not acceptable, they need to be told, you know, that isn't acceptable. And sometimes that message has to be reinforced. And do it once, do it right, never have to do it again, I'm pleased to say. Uh, all right, one more police thing, and then I want to talk to you about flying. I'm a pilot, so I'm very excited. You said on page 393, the powers given police have long been hotly debated, but it is not the extent of powers given to the police that creates a police state. It is the extent to which police are accountable for the exercise of those powers. I don't quite understand this quote. What do you mean? Because some people are saying we're in a police state now. So what do you mean? The, the, the powers given police give them the authority to do things in certain circumstances that affect other citizens. Curfews. That's as it has to be. Right, okay. But they should always be accountable for the exercise of those powers because it's, it's not the powers that are the problem. It's when police become unaccountable for the way in which they exercise those powers. You can't have a police state if there's a watchdog on police making sure that they are conforming to the law. Typical example, Gobbo. Um, it wasn't the way the powers were created, it was the way that police were not held accountable for the use of those powers. Right. So they used Gobbo as an informer in circumstances where it was clearly inappropriate, should never have happened. And, it was, and the accountability there was lacking because uh, lower ranks brought to notice to the chief commissioner and, and the hierarchy, this is going to go bad. This will end up in a royal commission because we're not doing the right thing and they were ignored. And, and now those ex-police in the mine are being held accountable and I wouldn't be surprised if some of those end up in jail because of the way that they've uh, behaved. So what, why did you use the word police state then? Are you saying that a police state arises when police are a law unto themselves? Absolutely. Right. Police can never be permitted to be a law unto themselves. Right. They must always be accountable. So, which if that were the definition of a police state, then we are not even we're not in one at all, not even close to one. No, no, we're not. Our problem is political. But then, police states around the world, wouldn't you call when police are a political arm of government? You'd call that a police state? Well, if you look at the KGB in Russia, yeah, uh, I've got no doubt they still uh, disappear people and uh, yeah. things of that kind, and, and they're not accountable. 
Oh, and yeah. uh, they're a, a kind of police force, if you like, uh, not as we perhaps traditionally think of them, but uh, yes. Um, but I've got no doubt. You know, there are other places in the world where um, the the average human rights of citizens are simply ignored. Okay. Well, okay. And what do you think about the the move now in Vicpol to talk, to dob in your neighbour? This is coming out a lot lately. Well, From <clears throat> I, I think that's over the top. Okay. There's no reason why, in fact, it used to be an offence once to know a felony had been committed and by whom and not report it. And it was called misprison of felony. Mm. And that offence was abolished. And uh, I actually got a few people committed for trial for it, but they were never actually presented mm. um, when I was doing committal proceedings. Mm. But uh, an an offence of that kind has, has some merit, but a serious one, yeah. That's that's dealing with you know very serious offences. I'm talking about when we were told to but for, ring... tri for trivial stuff. No, that's that's not our nature, not our culture, not not the way we should be going. Okay, because we were told to ring the police assistance line if there are too many cars in our neighbour's driveway because they may be breaching show directives. Yeah, I. Uh, and maybe they are. Maybe they shouldn't yeah, be. But I, I, I don't comes. believe it necessary. Okay. I'm finding this I think disturbing. It, sorry, I think it just demeans the whole process. It demeans the policing. It, it's just a, a draconian measure that has really no long-term benefit. Well, how much did you as a, as, as a police force in the world over time, you know, you're part of this history of policing, how much do police rely on community policing each other? I'm sorry. So, so obviously... You, you, your job as, as a police person, you're part of that whole history of policing in this, on this planet. You, your job is to police us, to protect us, to, to, to have order, law and order in society. But there's also another strand of policing, like this dob in your neighbour thing, where you can effectively outsource your role to the community. So right now, for example, mask wearing. Do you know who's enforcing mask wearing right now? For some people who can't wear them, they get yelled at in the supermarket. It's not by the police. You guys are great. You, you, you say, are you, why is your mask got a medical exemption? No worries, whatever. The community, I was walking with a Vic, uh, serving Victoria police member along the trails up in Warrandyte, along the river. Two ladies stopped us and he's there and, and screamed, stood in our, in our way in the path, screaming at us because I was drinking, he was eating a croissant, so not wearing a mask. And he's saying, what, what are you talking about? Doesn't matter that you're Victoria police, screaming at him. So there's an example of the community almost taking the role and yelling at the police. That seems convenient to me for the police force. The community has a big role to play in, in combating crime across the board. I mean, the eyes and ears out there of people who need to report uh, you know, suspicious acts and things of that kind is, is uh, not diminished. The old hue and cry of uh, you know of the past. Uh, uh, so the community has to play a role, but that's that's very complex. It's playing a role in reporting offences and things of that kind. But it's also um, ensuring standards, uh, seeing people, you know, calling people out for misbehaviour. I think that's uh, a good thing. I think that's a good thing. Okay. Uh, I think you know uh, there, there needs to be uh, some general consensus among the community as to what's an acceptable standard of behaviour. And in that sense, you know, we 
we have a community that uh, that we deserve uh, because if we don't look after one another, if we don't care for one another, mm. if we don't um, police one another to a sin as a community, we can't expect the police force to come in and you know change anything for the better. Mm. So do, do, do you not see problems with the dynamic of community policing one another, say whether it's mask rules or whatever, turning well, against each other? Well, no, we take a, a classic example of community policing, Neighbourhood Watch. Very good program. Which was set up so that community would report breaches and suspicious circumstances and so on. And that's, you know, um, caused uh, or, or dealt with, uh, prevented a lot of crime. Uh, um, people people can, can ring in too and uh, give information anonymously about crime and so on. Uh, that's a good thing. There's been murders solved because someone's rung up anonymously with some information on, you know, about a murder, which has led to apprehension and conviction of the offender. You know, that's part of what you should expect from a community, and the community you know, have that role to play. But, but a community, what do you call it? Neighbourhood Watch, the primary motivation behind that is you're my neighbour, and I want to protect you because I saw someone prowling outside. Or that guy's running drugs and he's got he's a drug house and we've got kids. I'm trying to protect you. I'm talking about dobbing in on the community, policing your fellow community when I'm coming after you. You shouldn't be using water because it's water restrictions. I'm dobbing you in. You didn't wear your mask to the car this morning. I'm calling the police assistance line. That's a different motivation. Yes, yes it is, but... Um I would have thought, you know, for things like, you know, watering out of, out of time or whatever, if your neighbour's doing that, the first thing you do is go to him and say, hey, listen, you know, you're not doing the right thing. Yeah. Uh, and then if that persists, you might go and say, listen, if you keep doing that, I'm going to, going to report you. Okay. And if it persists, then you might make a report. Okay. So it's a stage process, I guess, um, Depending on the seriousness of the offence, but if you, you know, <clears throat> if your neighbour you know, opens his garage door and there's forty television sets stacked <laughs> in there, uh, I think you're quite entitled and indeed bound to say, "Hey, look, uh, where did you get all the television sets?" I would do that too. Look, I'm just concerned if I told you off for uh, you're watering the lawn in the thing. I just feel like I need you. I need you to be my neighbour three months yeah, from now. No matter telling off, you know, uh, there, there are ways of doing things. Uh, yeah. Now, when giving people orders, I would say to someone, would you mind doing this? Right. They know it's an order. They know what I'm really saying is go and do this. Yes. But just saying, would you mind doing this, takes the, the heat out of it. You know, it makes you say, it's not, hey, you, go and do this. Um, there's no need for that kind of approach. So you can have a softly, softly approach. Mm. You know, uh, and every now and again, they'll of course, they will but generally not. Um. Kel, you've done so much with your life. After policing, I mean, you retired in 1993. 1992. Sorry, 1992. I was barely going to school, right? <laughs> it makes me not to point out your age, but to point out my lack of my lack of experience. And then you went and had a whole life. You became a pilot. I'm a pilot. You, you you became a pilot, and then you stopped flying. You don't fly anymore. No, I had a stroke 10 years ago, um, coming August. Um, 
I had a bleed in the right visual cortex of the brain and my wife grounded me. Why? But I was always interested in flying. Uh, actually, um, I had a lot of trips in the police plane and yeah, uh, yeah. when we when they had aircraft because yeah. they lost the fixed wing under yeah. the government. But uh, yeah. I used to love to sit in the co-pilot seat. Yeah. At age 60, uh, I'm always interested in hang gliding. Uh, at age 60, I picked up a magazine one day and there was an article in there about microlight trike aircraft. Yes. And I thought, well, that's hang gliding without the disadvantages as a motor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you take off, you don't have to run and jump off a cliff or yes. anything like that. Yes. So I went up to Benalla and um, went for a test flight yeah. and loved every second of it. I can't stand on the roof, but different feeling. Mm. Loved every second of it. So um, at age 60, I then uh, took some instruction. Mm. I soloed at 12.4 hours. 12 hours? 12.4 hours. That's low. I have, yeah. I have a fixed wing private. Yeah, we do it more like at 20 hours, 30 hours. Yeah, I, I got my licence at uh, 24.4. Isn't there a minimum? Isn't there a minimum? For private pilots, 55. For uh, trikes, uh, trikes, that was enough anyway. Oh, as long okay. as the instructor was willing to sign off, is okay. what it came down to. But then you flew all around Australia, which I found amazing. I flew all over the place, uh, yeah. yes. Um, At what, 30 knots? <laughs> oh, no, 60 knots. 60 oh, knots. Well, firstly, the first wing I had was very slow. It was 37 knots. Yeah. Um, and I got left behind uh, a couple of times in difficult circumstances. Mm. Flying in a group, mm. so I then uh, bought another faster wing, and I could trim that up to fly at sixty knots. In your face, that air must and, be strong. Sixty. Um, knots. I actually extended the legally, I guess, but I extended the windscreen oh. on mine. Um, um, it had a windscreen, but it was like a motorcycle windscreen, quite low. I, I extended it, yeah, and that became quite fashionable after that. Okay. But I also, <clears throat> pardon me, I also flew in an industrial freezer suit. Oh. And, of course, helmet and, and gloves and bar mitts and yeah, whatever. But um, it's being an eagle. It's uh, the most fun you can have with your clothes on. There's no question about it. Uh, and you flying, said it's more fun in the book. <laughs> well, you said it's better than sex. As I said, you, you don't have to think about it as long. You get off the ground quicker and you can go around as many times as you like. <laughs> you but uh, but um, it was just exhilarating, absolutely exhilarating. Um, and... Uh, I regret that I stopped when I did, but I did it, you know, happy wife, happy life. Uh, my wife was worried about me falling off the perch again while I was in the air. Oh, that's why. Because I fell out of the chair at home with this bleed on the oh. brain. Is that likely to happen? Is a stroke something that can come back, like a heart attack? I believe it was a result of a fall 13 months earlier. Oh. Because I could never find any other reason for it. Okay. I fell over and landed on the back of my head so much, oh. so hard that for three days it felt like my eyes were coming out of the sockets. There you go. That's, that's And uh, although it took 13 months, I really think that was what it was. And I've had, it cost me a little bit of clarity of sight in a band just down there, but, uh, but no other adverse impact at all. You missed the light sport aircraft era. Would you have gone that way instead of trikes? Oh, I love the trike. I love it. That was just open. Open and. Um, um, Flying slow enough to, to really appreciate yeah. what you're flying over. Well, how high were you in a truck? The highest I ever went into was 8,800 feet. Would you cruise around lower than that, though? Generally under 5,000 yeah. feet, according to the regulations, unless there's a reason for going higher. Okay. 
Um, I went higher coming out of Ayers Rock because I had a shocking head wind at lower altitude. Yeah. And uh, so I kept going up until I got up something of a, you know, a tailwind. Okay. Um, but most of the flights were under 5,000 feet. I mean, they were flying from Yarram to Tarelgan up over the range. Yeah. You've got to get over 5,000 feet, otherwise you don't get over the mountain. <laughs> that must be devastating to have given that up because flying gets in your blood. I miss it every day. Oh. I miss it every day. I, if I could convince my wife, <laughs> but, even at 83, I'd be back there again. Don't, don't you get to an, I don't know, I'm not there yet, but when you get to a certain age, don't you think, well, that's it, I'm done, I'm going out with a bang, I'm 85, I've got another 15 years or whatever, I'm just going to have fun if I die in a crash, whatever. Well, I said, and I think I finished my book saying, I'm going to live every day as if it my last, because one mm. day I'll be right. Mm. I mean, it, while you, you know, you can, you should do. Mm. I'd rather rust out, I'd rather wear out than rust out. <laughs> you know, you so, could do safety pilot. You could have a two-seat like a... Oh, well, well, I had a two-seater. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was tandem. Okay. And, uh, you know, I took lots of people flying and the vast majority enjoyed every minute of it. Yeah. Well, except my wife who didn't enjoy it. Oh, but yeah. she doesn't enjoy a jumbo jet either, so... Yeah. But I had 13 years of, um, of flying. Uh, flew along the Murray from um, Bechuga to the Murray Mouth. Oh, um, yeah. Flew all around Gippsland, flew to Central Australia. Yeah. Um, flew to Whitecliffs, Maplefield, um, yeah. and did, you know, I, I flew out of Vanilla for a long time, and, I, and then out of Mangalore, and then out of Flowerdale, and did a lot of local flying. Um, we were fly, flying to. Um, Paul Parker going and bright, you know, just sort of bright, going over Mount Buffalo in midwinter okay. with it all covered in snow. Oh, lovely. I was just, uh, I, I simply loved it. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you some deep wisdom questions to finish us off, but let me pitch your book because I don't read, I read a lot, but uh, I don't pitch many books, but this was a good one. Uh, if you want to grab the perspective of uh, Kel and what he went through, Angry Ant, he's, he's done a, so many, a million things and we've covered... 10%, 20% of his career. All right, uh, Kel, you're older than me, I think. <laughs> By a long way. I want some wisdom from you. Yeah, right? Uh, what would you say has changed in the way you think? Have you, have you come to some revelations, some thoughts that had you have known when you were younger, but you know now? Do you have any... Well, I actually had an inferiority complex. I was a weedy kid. Uh, when I left school, I was five feet two and seven stone eight. And I was bullied at school yeah. because of that. Uh, I was fairly smart. I finished you know, near the top of the class, uh, which didn't help in a way yeah. <laughs> when you're a weedy kid. Yeah, the nerd. Yeah. Um, but... It took me a long time to overcome that, and that's why it probably took me so long to go back to school. Oh. Uh, but uh, I gradually came to the realisation that um, I was the one that's setting the limits on what I did. Oh. Um, I did a lot of things in my youth that were not good for me. I, I drank a lot of beer until I gave up cold turkey and went eight years without having an alcoholic drink. I now have a drink occasionally, but it's very occasionally and never more than two. Yep. Um, so 
having come to the realisation that I had certain abilities, I, I thought I had a responsibility to myself uh, to change things I didn't like about my life, and drinking was one of them. Mm. And uh, in the end, you are in command of, of, of what you do and who you are. Oh, wow. So I think you've just got to be, be true to yourself. And, um, and I always, I guess, like to have a go at things. Um, I hated to be told I couldn't do something until I'd tried. Um, I think I wrote about that in the book about becoming a detective. I became a detective yeah. simply because I was told I couldn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to, but uh, yeah. but the way it happened, it was simply because I was told it, it, it couldn't happen. Uh, and uh, so I think you've got to do what makes you happy. Mm. The rest is of no great consequence. Family's important, of course. But if you're doing something that you're unhappy with, change. You can't keep doing something that you don't like doing. And I love my career, all but a very short space of it. Uh, um, I was managing the Russell Street Police dining room for five months. <laughs> That's a great story. You're going to have to get the book to read about the cockroaches and the rats and everything. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you know, do what you want to do. Aim to, to do. I mean, I was never ambitious. I did never expect to end up Chief Commissioner. Yeah. But it turned out that way and I was happy to to you know, accept the role and um, and do my best to perform in it. So <clears throat> I think we put limits on ourselves yeah. rather than other people you know, imposing limits. Right. Someone said once, aim for the moon even if you only hit the chimney. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that version of it. I've heard land amongst the stars. Uh, that is very wise. I like what you said about y you are in command of what you do and who you are. Just that word command is, I think we've lost that a lot. People have an external locus of control and we've lost that sense of internal locus of control. We can make a life for ourselves. And I couldn't imagine going through life at a job uh, as I had for the first four years, uh, which I didn't like. Um, and that's why I looked around for something else to do. I thought, I can't do this for the rest of my life. This is, uh, this is not me. Mm. What's surprised you the most in your life? What, what, what's the real, has any, have you learned something about humanity that is really surprising? In policing, you see a great deal of the seamy side of life, you know, the, the yeah. worst side of life, yeah. but there are an enormous number of wonderful people out there who are really giving to the community, uh, you know, doing great things, very selfless. Yes. And, uh, we should never lose sight of that. In policing, you, you see so much of the bad, it's a bit of a tendency to lose sight of all the, all the good people out there. Okay. So that was one of the things I think I guarded against. Uh, treat people as you find them. Uh, you know, don't uh, stereotype people, don't jump to conclusions, don't make assumptions about people, just treat them as you find them. Right. And if you do that, uh, every now and again, you'll trust someone, they'll let you down, that happens. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't continue to trust because you can't live your life being suspicious of everyone and everything. Um, it just uh, can't work like that. Uh, you end up unhappy. Mm. Uh, uh, all right. I'm enjoying asking you these questions. hope you don't mind answering them. I'm getting a lot out of it. I'm young, millennial. What do we get wrong? What's the thing we get wrong the most about life, the young'uns? 
I think there's a tendency to become a bit too um, processions orientated. Oh. Um, look, you know, what do you really need in your life by way of processions? Some people need more things than others. It's because you grew up without a but, stove and electricity and a shower. Yeah, yeah. Some of yeah, us we, had, we had no running water, we had no electricity. Uh, we had a bath that you had to carry the water from the copper where it was boiled into the bath and tip it in the bath to get in. And uh, that was the first nine years. Uh, after that, life got better but uh, in terms of amenities. But, uh, um, of course, we didn't know we were deprived. That was just how it was. Uh, and get on with it. And uh, I guess that's the other thing, just get on with it. Um, you know, you can always... Think of reasons why you shouldn't do things, but you should be thinking about reasons why you should do some things. Um, so we're, we're too possession-focused, you think? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I look at mobile phones. Yeah. Everyone wants the latest model. Every time a new model comes Every out, year. that's the greatest cod job ever, you know, <laughs> by the phone companies, the telcos. I mean... Yeah. Uh, how can you keep selling twelve or fourteen hundred dollars phones to people every year or two? You know, they're going up too. They used to be thousand dollars. Now they're fourteen, fifteen. That's right. I mean, uh, I said I don't understand why people need to have the very latest phone every time one comes out. Yeah. Uh, somebody makes a phone call, receives a message, or send a text, or yeah. uh, you know, gets an email or whatever. It's still got the apps on it. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just, you know, I must have, I must have the best, I must have the biggest. You don't really need all of that. You need what makes you comfortable. Right. Uh, Kel, where, you got any predictions? Where, where are we going? Do you think we'll, do you think we'll, uh, we're getting better as a race, hum, humans, or even just Victorians, or are we getting worse? No, uh, I think we're becoming too bound down by political correctness that we've, reached a point where we, we can't make a joke about the Irish. Uh, Drunks that they are. <laughs> or, or we can't laugh at ourselves, you know. Um, uh, we're becoming so... Everyone's insulted about almost everything. Why, for hell's sake? Uh, you know, if someone says something you don't like, don't take any notice of it. There's an old adage, sticks and stones might break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Why does everyone have to be insulted about everything? Uh, you know, why do we have to get so uptight about things at the end don't matter? Mm. I mean, we take gender. I don't care what people identify as. I don't care if they identify as a bloody zebra. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, treat them as you find them. Uh, I don't care about their sexuality or their, yeah. their gender. Or, yeah. uh, you know, uh, it's not my business. Why should I, why should I care about it? Uh, yeah. I... I don't care what, I'll just treat people as I find them. And, uh, and you know, we, said we just get so politically correct that we're frightened to insult anyone. Well, you should insult everyone, and that way you don't have to worry. I like that. That's a comedian <laughs> creed, insult everyone, including yourself. Yeah, well, if you can't laugh at yourself, you're in a serious divily. Absolutely. I mean, as I say, you know, take your work seriously, but if the moment you start to, start to take yourself seriously, you're in trouble. Amen. I mean, in the end, none of us are important. We're all only here for a short time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if we try and make our space in the world, everything around us a little better, then what more could we ask for? Uh, all right. So I give you a magic wand. Last question. I give you a magic wand. How would you fix the entire world? Uh, real problems. Tribalism, isn't it? I don't know. 
What do you see? I think it is. I think it is. I think you know, we don't see people as, as people as just one population. Yeah. You know, we differentiate according to ethnicity and yeah. uh, and culture and whatever. Uh, we're not trying to impose our will on other people that don't want to have it, you know, our will imposed on them across the board. We just sort of live as, as one, you know, community um, and uh, and just treat everyone as I don't care with the people, the black, white, blue, green, brindle, whatever they are, just they're people. And uh, it shouldn't be about race, it shouldn't be about colour, it shouldn't be about religion, it should just be all one happy big family, all trying to do the best thing by one another. Team Human. Kel Glare, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, thank you for being, for, for, for your story I, I, is inspiring to someone like me because I see more often examples of leaders, managers, politicians who roll over, who don't stand with conviction. And when I was reading your book last night, it struck me that you could have failed at any one of those points. You were standing for things constantly and it could have taken you out and you could never have been chief commissioner and you stood for it anyway. So thank you for giving us that example because it's risky and I think young uns like myself need to learn to take some risks and stand for something. So thank you. Matthew, my pleasure. Uh, life's a risk. Um, no one gets out of it uh, alive at the end. So um, yeah, but thank you. I, I really enjoyed the experience. Mm -hmm.